Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening, if you would. As you can see on the screen behind me, get your Bibles open to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, as we resume and return to our preaching theme for 2021, thinking about the gospel according to Romans, seeing what we can learn from the pen of Paul through this marvelous book of the Bible. We'll be exclusively in Romans chapter 5 tonight, so let's get those Bible pages turned over there and just be ready to, to work in the text. It is great to see everyone tonight. I'm so glad that you are here. I'm encouraged by your, by your presence. It's been just a, a, a nice day. The Lord's given us a, maybe a little bit cooler than what we would expect for this time in the early part of spring, but we're thankful for the day that He's given us and thankful for the time that we've had to be together to worship Him and to encourage each other. And I'm thankful that we can do that a, a second time here at the close of this day. Read with me in Romans chapter 5. I'm reading here right in the middle of the book. In Romans 5, look in verse 9 and 10 to start with. In Romans 5 and in verse 9, there Paul says this. He says, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, then much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by Him. His life. You ever see any of those used car commercials where the salesman is going on about how these prices are too good to be true and there's all kinds of big bubbly letters and graphics and colors flashing on the screen while they talk about this is a once in a lifetime offer. This is a, you know, just a chance you're never going to have again. It's a can't miss deal. Let me ask you, whenever you see those kinds of just very grandiose sales pitches, does that make you just immediately jump off your couch and run down to the used car lot waving your money saying, hey, I need to get me one of those used cars? Eh, me neither. In a society that is saturated with that kind of hyperbolic marketing, it's really easy for us to, to hear that and to see that and really we just kind of write that off as being just a bunch of, just a bunch of hype. If it seems like it's something that's too good to be true, well, generally we, we figure that it probably is too good to be true. Well, for three chapters in the book of Romans, Paul has hammered away at the absolute truth that all are sinners. That it does not matter if you are a Jew or if you are a Gentile. It doesn't matter whether you grew up respecting and observing the law of Moses or whether you worshipped idols down at the idol temple. Everybody all winds up in the same place. All, capital A-L-L, all are sinners. But then in the fourth chapter, maybe really toward the end of the third chapter, but especially in chapter 4, Paul begins by, by telling some good news. That sinners can be justified and they can be justified by faith in Christ Jesus. That we can be saved. We can be forgiven. We can be a child of Abraham even. That is good news. In fact, that is great news. But you can maybe hear it. You can maybe hear it echoed through the other side of the pages when this letter was originally read. Because when that epistle was read in the church at Rome, you can probably imagine somebody saying, eh, that just sounds too good to be true. That just sounds like that's just something that just isn't realistic. I mean, how can that possibly be forgiven, justified, that is to be made right with God, to be declared not guilty? Ah, that's, I just don't know how that could possibly ever be done. I mean, Paul, you don't even know the kinds of sins that I have committed. You don't know as well the kinds of things that I've left undone in my life, but God certainly knows. 
And now, Paul, you want to come along and say that I can be reconciled to God? I can be saved from His wrath, Paul? Paul, that just sounds too good to be true. Well, welcome to Romans chapter 5. Because in Romans the 5th chapter, Paul is going to put together what I believe in many ways might be the greatest chapter ever written in Scripture on the subject of assurance. What Paul wants to show us in Romans chapter 5, what he wants to help the Romans see and what he wants to help us to see is that the gospel does indeed provide for us assurance. I know and you know that even though we sing those wonderful hymns like Blessed Assurance, which Matt's going to lead us in at the close of our service this evening, that despite what we say in the words of that song, that it is still very easy for us to to doubt our salvation, to question, and to maybe even say things like, like, me? Me? I could be saved and I could be assured of my salvation? I just, I don't know. I'm just not really sure and confident that I am saved. And that is precisely why we need chapters like Romans 5 so very much. The heart of this chapter is the verses that we just read, verses 9 and 10. And God gives this promise in verses 9 and 10 that He will save us, that He will reconcile us to Him, that we will be spared from His wrath through the blood of Jesus, then we need to believe it. And we need to accept it and we need to trust the Lord at His word. And I do want to admit to you just right up front, this is not the easiest chapter in the Bible. I said at the outset of our Roman study that Romans itself is not an easy book and this chapter in particular does not help that fearsome reputation that it has. There is a comparison in the back half of this chapter that Paul is going to make between Adam and Jesus. And you may have read those verses before and it maybe has caused you to pull out your hair. Well, more important than what happens to your hair is the main thing, the main idea in this chapter. And that is that we have been saved by what Jesus does. And we can depend on that. And when we do, when we trust, then we in turn can have blessed assurance. Now maybe as I'm saying that, somebody would maybe say, well, you know, Josh, that's all fine and good. And that sounds like a dandy subject to preach on. But but I thought Romans was about this congregation in Rome that was divided. You had all these lines being drawn between Jews and Gentiles. And I thought Paul was writing this stuff to try to help unite them in Christ. Remember all that stuff in the first few chapters? All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And yet at the same time, all can be justified. All can be saved. So what gives here in chapter 5? Why talk here about about assurance? What's that got to do with it? Well, I think maybe chapter 5 is where Paul begins to kind of expand a bit. Maybe in some ways chapter 5 we might look at it as kind of a bridge chapter. Because there's going to be some themes here that Paul is going to kind of... He's kind of... Things that he's developed in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 that these themes are going to kind of recede a little bit. And at the same time, Paul's going to start to bring some new themes to the forefront. Themes like peace and reconciliation. And maybe most importantly of all, the idea of living as a Christian. That's going to be fully fleshed out when we get to chapters 12 and 13 and 14. This is what you need to do in order to live like a Christian. But but what if you're not really sure that you're a Christian? What if you're not 100% confident that I really am saved and I really am a child of God? Well, that's why Romans 5 is so important. 
Because Paul's going to say again and again and again that the basis of our assurance is Jesus Christ. And when we focus ourselves on Jesus, then we will be able to boldly and gladly sing those words, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Let's work together in the text this evening and see if we can't grab a hold of that assurance. I'm going to break, I'm going to break this chapter into two parts because I think it just kind of works out neatly to be broken into two parts. As these first 11 verses really are all about assurance. It is the assurance that you can and you will be saved. Look with me in verse 1, Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that was the big topic in chapter 4, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. How can we be assured? How can you and I be assured of salvation? Paul stresses that we can be assured when we focus on what God has done in Christ Jesus. I think so many people today, so many Christians today, we make the mistake of thinking and trying to figure out that our assurance is somehow based on, on what we've done. Here's how I can be confident that I'm saved, that I did this and I did that. I went to church three times a week. I made sure and I read my Bible and checked my Bible reading off every day. I prayed really hard every day. I tried to just be a good person every day. N no. No, no, no. No one's ever going to find assurance in that. Remember, what are we? What is Paul established in the first three chapters of this book? We are all sinners. Sinners can never find assurance in the things that they do. We may do some good things from time to time, but we are broken and we are messed up. Sin messes all of that up. That's why Paul says emphatically here in verse 1, he says that we find peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, he says it is through Him that we are able to stand. Look at that term. You think first of all about peace. That, that says something about assurance. That's a calmness and a, and a settledness within our soul that we recognize that things are well between me and God. But furthermore, that word stand in verse 2. That speaks of confidence. That speaks of certainty. Paul does not say we're just kind of hanging on by our fingernails and well, we're going to fall at any moment. No. He says we stand in this grace. I'm standing in God's grace. I have peace within my soul. And I want you to notice that Paul says that this doesn't have anything to do with your emotions. This isn't about whether you feel close to God or not. No, this assurance is actually a very objective thing. Because this assurance that God provides for us, it is based upon us being in Christ. It's about what the Lord has done. When I am in Christ, I can be settled. I can be confident. I can stand. I have assurance. I would call your attention to this word that's used here in verse 2. The ESV renders it rejoice. Talks about there about how we rejoice in hope of the glory of God because of the things that the Lord has done. That term, maybe in your Bible, is rendered glory. Or there's actually a translation or two that actually uses this word, the word boast. I like that a lot. That we can boast about what God has done. I'm not boasting about what I've done. I'm a sinner. What do I have to boast about? 
I instead can boast about what the Lord has done, the amazing things that the Lord has done, and I will boast in that. In fact, we even see that word rejoice again in the very next verse. Look in verse 3. In verse 3, more than that, we rejoice, boast, in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, that is, it doesn't disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Notice here that Paul says that we are able to have this assurance even despite suffering. And the fact of the matter is, Christians will suffer. Let's be careful and notice that Paul does not say that we rejoice because we are suffering. No. Paul doesn't say that suffering is somehow good in and of itself. No, what he just says here is he says that being in Christ is it gives Christians a way to cope with the sufferings and the difficulties of this life. Christianity does not insulate us from suffering and from trouble, but it does empower us to deal with those troubles. In fact, people who are in Christ, we can handle suffering because we view that as a means of of growing us. We see that as a means of strengthening us. It is something that builds us and makes us stronger so that we can keep serving the Lord. Paul then concludes that thought at the end of verse 5 by saying that we're not going to be disappointed about that because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Now... We start reading statements like that, and that just kind of sounds a little spooky, sounds a little mystical. Anytime the Holy Spirit gets mentioned in contexts like this, you can maybe almost kind of hear in the back of your mind the twilight zone, the no, 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 no. What's going on here? This Holy Spirit business. It sounds kind of kind of ghostly what he's doing there. Sounds kind of strange and mysterious. Well, let me ask you, how does the Holy Spirit pour the love of God into our hearts? He certainly could do it through some kind of a mystical sort of way. But I believe that the way the Holy Spirit does that is He does that through His Word. He tells us what God has done through Jesus at the cross. You stop and think about it. If we didn't have the Bible, if we didn't have the Scriptures, you could be standing at the very foot of the cross itself and you wouldn't understand anything about what was taking place there. Yeah, you'd understand a guy is dying and he seems like a pretty good fella and you might be wondering why is all this happening to him, but you wouldn't have any real concept of the significance of that. You wouldn't know the meaning of that and the power of that without the Scriptures. But because of the Spirit's work through the written Word, we do understand it. And since we understand it, we then can be assured of God's love for us. Even in adversity, even when we are suffering, as Paul talks about, we can know that God's love for us is greater than any of that suffering because the Spirit has told us through the Word. And so, verses 6 and 7, verses I actually read this morning, in this morning's study, verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. You know, Paul points out that, yeah, sometimes, sometimes a person will give their life in an act of heroism to to save another person's life. 
And when that happens, people acknowledge that. That's reported on the news and it gets spread around and goes viral on the internet. That's a noble thing when that happens. But what God has done is even greater than all of that because, verse 8, that God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look at what God has done, Paul says. Look at the established fact of the cross. Again, assurance is not about how you feel. You know, I, I, I feel saved today. Or maybe tomorrow, I don't feel very saved. No, 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 no. It's not about feelings. It's about the facts. Look at what God has done. Christ died for us, verse 8 says. Verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. The argument here is an actual argument that the rabbis would often employ. It is the argument from heavy to light. That is, from hard to easy. If God can reconcile sinners, if God can reconcile ungodly people to Himself, why, getting them on to heaven carrying them the rest of the way through this life. Well, well, that's no problem at all for God. The hard part, if you will, if you want to kind of even say that, the hard part here is the reconciliation thing that Jesus had to do and it was accomplished at the cross. But if God was able to do that, then keeping us saved, continuing us, getting us through this life and bringing us ultimately with Him in heaven someday, I mean, that's just not a problem at all for God. I mean, what will God not do? for His children. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Would you notice once again, there's that word rejoice one more time. And I like the idea of boast. What are we doing? We are glorying. We are rejoicing. We are boasting in the things that God has done. If we're going to be some, doing some bragging about anything, we're going to brag about the great things that God has done and what God will do even more now that we are reconciled to Him. I think these verses help us so much in finding assurance because they emphasize our necessity, the need for us to trust, to trust in the One who saved me when I made those initial steps in obedience to the gospel but furthermore, the one who continues to save me. As I'm reconciled to Him, God continues to save me and works on my behalf. Even I who once was His enemy, the Lord continues to save. That, that is assurance. Now, as is often the case, Paul's always kind of one step ahead of his readers because he anticipates that there is the likelihood that somebody's going to read these first 11 verses, or at least what we know is the first 11 verses in the epistle, and they're still going to say at the end of all that, they're going to say, yeah, yeah, but. They're going to say, yeah, you know, that, that all probably works out pretty good for some folks, but, but you don't know how sinful I am. There's a lot of sins in my life that Jesus is going to have to clean up. I mean... I've done a lot of bad things in my life. I, I, I did a lot of bad things when I was involved in idol worship and was there in those pagan idol temples. 
Or maybe somebody else in the congregation would say, you know what, I did a lot of bad things even as a Jew growing up who knew the Word of God, I knew the law of Moses, and I violated it anyway. In fact, in some ways that makes me worse than the Gentiles because I knew better and I still violated God's will. I'm a terrible sinner. I've done awful things and I'm just not sure that I'm saved. I mean, this is great, this stuff about what Jesus has done, but I just don't think it's enough to take care of me and my sins. Paul says, au contraire, you can be sure. You can be confident. Because in verses 12 through the remainder of the chapter, Paul details how Jesus' sacrifice, it is all sufficient. It is all sufficient to save anyone. And I need you to just kind of go ahead and look forward a little bit. Look to verse 18. Because verse 18, in many ways, everything else is going to revolve around this in the remaining verses. Everything revolves around what verse 18 says because it is there that Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's the key verse. That's the verse that you want to circle and underline. You'll notice I've made it yellow to kind of make it stand out from the other passages here. Because that right there is everything that Paul is going to say in these remaining verses from verse 12 down through verse 21. If you can understand what that verse says, then congratulations. You understand Romans 5. It is about the all-sufficiency of the death of Jesus on the cross that is the centerpiece of these remaining verses. And what Paul says in essence in that verse, and we'll see it bore out in the verses that surround it, is Paul is going to say that one person, one person has affected every person who has ever lived or ever will live. And that one act, one single act, has had an effect upon all humanity. And he's going to make that comparison between Adam and Jesus. And when we stop and think about it for a moment, we come to realize that really, really there isn't anyone but Adam that Paul could use to make this illustration and to make it work. Because think about it. Can you name anybody else in all of human history whose life has had such an effect the way that Adam's did? Now, perhaps what makes this passage, these verses, so difficult for us is because there's a lot of talk in the religious world that surrounds these verses and a lot of misunderstanding because of what John Calvin taught about 1,500 years after these things were wrote. John Calvin came along and began to press his doctrine, what is now known as Calvinism. And so as a result, we get to these verses and, I mean, we can't even just say what the verses say to people because we've almost got to unteach all of these wrong ideas, unpack all of these false doctrines that people have had embedded into their minds and then that's what kind of where the difficulty and where the problems come from. I, I'm going to say to you this evening what I said at the very beginning of this Roman study. I said this all the way back in lesson number one. And that is that John Calvin is not invited to this sermon series. John Calvin, Calvinist, Calvinism, it did not exist when Paul wrote these words. And so we're not even going to allow those ideas and those concepts of inherited depravity and original sin, we're not even allowing those ideas to enter into the text. John Calvin, you stay home. You can't come to Romans chapter 5 unless you're just going to say what Paul says. Because I really do believe that what Paul says here, if we just kind of focus on verse 18, I think it's pretty simple. I think it's pretty straightforward. 
And so we want to keep Paul's main idea in front of us. That just as one man's sin had some terribly destructive results, also one man's righteous act had incredibly constructive results. Paul's point is that the grace of God is more powerful. It is more than capable of offsetting all the terrible effects that sin has created in our world. I think if you can understand that, then you can understand Romans 5. And in fact, you can understand and you can know what it is to have assurance. And so, read with me in verse 12. In verse 12, and I'm just going to keep, I'm going to keep those thoughts right there on the sidebar for the remainder because I want us to just kind of keep coming back to that. If we ever get bogged down in any of this other stuff, we just keep coming back to that main point. Verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Now, as Paul begins to kind of make this comparison here, notice at the end of verse 12, the ESV has this little dash here. That ought to be kind of an indicator to us that Paul is kind of interrupting himself. We'll start making this comparison, but hold on, wait a second here. I need to say some other stuff. I need to say some more things before I flesh out that comparison here. Paul is working the idea that since Adam's sin, everybody on the face of this earth has had to deal and cope with the results of sin. Sin was let loose. It's this terrible monster that was let out of the box. It's been let loose and now all people sin and all people die. Well, verse 13. Verse 13, what is, what is this? What is this problem that sin has created? Actually, look at verse 12. He uses the word death. Death through sin. Death spread to all men because all have sinned. There's a lot of uncertainty about what that means. What is this death? Is this talking about physical death? Is it talking about spiritual death? I think there's some arguments and some things and points of consideration on both sides of that. And that's worth studying, that's worth thinking about, that's worth coming to maybe some kind of a concrete conclusion in your mind as to what that death is talking about. But I'm just simply going to say this. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what it means. Because whatever that death means, Jesus undid it. Jesus rectified it. Jesus took care of it. And I want us to remember that. Again, I'll be glad to hear and entertain your thoughts about whether that's talking about physical death or whether that's talking about spiritual death. Maybe you think that's talking about both kinds of death and maybe there's an argument to be made about that. But whatever it means, Jesus undid it. Jesus fixed it through that one righteous act. Now verse 13. Verse 13, talking about sin. For sin indeed was in the world even before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one thing who was to come, or excuse me, of the one who was to come. Paul points out here that sin was a monster on the face of this earth even before the law of Moses came. You had a period of time there between, between Adam and Moses, maybe a few hundred years. And so, all right, did sin just not exist during that time since the law was in existence? No, Paul said there was sin. And sin was causing trouble then. It was still sin. Sin existed before the law of Moses. Sin is not dependent upon the law. And so now, after getting that out of the way, knowing that there's Jews who would bring up that stuff about the law, Paul then begins the comparison, verse 15. He says there, but the free gift, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. You know, there are some points of comparison that Paul wants to make between Adam and Jesus. 
But Paul needs to also clarify that, hey, there's, there's some differences as well. Adam and Jesus are not exactly the same. First of all, Christ has done more than Adam did. His effect is greater upon the face of this earth than sin. Grace has surpassed and outdid sin. It is able to make alive what sin has killed. Secondly, Christ's gift, it came not as a result of one sin, but for all of our sins. Christ's gift is not just the antidote for the sin that Adam committed back then, but for all of our sins. Verse 16 even bears that out. Verse 16, and the free gift, it's not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. What Paul does is he just keeps emphasizing the superiority of Jesus and what Jesus has done. Jesus is greater than Adam. Yes, they are similar in that one person affected all of human history and one person, one act affected all of humanity. But Christ is greater. He reverses Adam's act by doing something that was more powerful, even more comprehensive. Verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Which then leads us to that verse that's kind of our focal point, verse 18. The summation, as Paul's about to close the chapter, verse 18 once again, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Watch here how this idea in verse 18 is a theme that Paul's been building through the whole book. You see that phrase, all men? We've seen that several times, haven't we? All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All can be justified. All can be saved. These are the concepts that Paul's using to try to bring this church together. All of us are in the same boat. And in this sense, all of us are Adam. Would you let that sink in for a second? We are all Adam. We are all sinners. In fact, we are all, I'm just going to use the language of the text, we are all made sinners by what Adam did. Now if that sounds shocking to you, just that phrase, we are made sinners by what Adam did, we'll just read the text, verse 19. Verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now right about here is where those alarm bells start going off. Whoa, 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 whoa. That, that kind of sounds like inherited depravity. That sounds like original sin. Here comes the Calvinism stuff into the conversation. We are made sinners. Well, I will deal with a little bit of Calvinism right here for just a second because that is a troubling passage if you've got Calvinistic thoughts in your mind. I will tell you very forthrightly that I do not believe that verse 19 teaches the idea of original sin that somehow we are born in sin, that we are made sinners as soon as we enter into this world, that somehow we inherit the sins that Adam committed. If it does, then there's a whole lot of questions that we're going to have to have answered. In fact, there's questions that we'd have to have answered just within the book of Romans itself. I mean, think about it. If this is the idea that Paul's trying to convey, that somehow we are made sinners, we're just born as sinners, then 
then why did you do all that talking in the first three chapters about how we are the ones who commit sin? And we are the ones who, who make God angry and we incur God's wrath because we choose to sin. Why doesn't Paul just say in the very beginning of the book, you were born in sin? That's a, I think it's a fair question. Secondly, if this idea of being made sinners, if that teaches universal depravity and universal sin and that all are sinners because of that, then does this verse also teach universal salvation? Because look at what verse 19 also says. The end of the verse says that we are made righteous. Does that teach that everybody's going to be saved? Everybody's just born saved as well? I don't think that, that that's the correct understanding of that as well. Thirdly, there's just a host of other passages in the whole rest of the Bible that we'd have to deal with. There's some things in the book of Titus chapter 2 that I think would bump up against this. There's passages in Ezekiel 18 in the Old Testament that teach that we are never charged with the sins of another person. It's very clear when we put all that together that Paul means something very different from this idea that all people were born depraved and black in their sin. I think maybe what Paul means here when he says made sinners is it just means that we're all treated as sinners. Maybe that's the note that you'd want to put in your Bible. That we are all treated as sinners. Think about Paul and Silas in Acts the 16th chapter. We'll be getting there very soon in our Wednesday night study. Those guys were thrown in jail and treated as criminals even though they were innocent. In much the same way, you and I, we now live in a fallen world. And we all die. That's part of the consequences of sin. And that's true even of the innocent. Even infants, even little babies, they die. So in that sense, all people are treated as sinners. Pointedly though, Paul then says something about the law one more time, knowing his audience, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul notes here that the presence of the law, it didn't really change anything. The law comes in, but, but did it solve the problem of sin? No, it didn't. Really, if anything, what the law did is the law just kind of put a spotlight on sin. It made sin obvious. It made clear what sin is and what sin does. But the law itself, the law can't save. The law can't save anybody. It doesn't stop sin. It just makes it more obvious. What Paul says is he says you can't stop God, you can't stop His grace. Verse 21, grace abounded all the more so that, verse 21, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law just makes grace abound all the more so that we are, verse 21, saved through Jesus Christ. And that goes for anybody. That goes for anybody. Even the most wretched, vile, awful sinner. It doesn't matter what you've done. I don't know what the people in Rome maybe had done in their lives that would have been so awful. But you stop and think about whatever it is that you've done that is so awful. No sin is beyond the grace of God. Salvation is offered to all. And it is offered through that, offered through that one man, Jesus the Christ. And so, somebody maybe hears all of that. And so, now suddenly all those thoughts and all those expressions about it's just too good to be true. It, it just doesn't seem believable. Suddenly now, suddenly now it's a little bit more believable. 
As Paul has conveyed and he has built the idea that the sacrifice of Jesus, it is all sufficient. And he has assured us that we can and we will be saved from the wrath of God because of what the Lord has done and even more so what the Lord is continuing to do so that we can have confidence and assurance. I have to imagine that as the Christians there in Rome maybe arrived at the end of chapter 5, that maybe there was some rejoicing on their part. That maybe there was some, some excitement. Again, those first few chapters are hard reading. Those would have been difficult things to hear. But maybe now, chapter 4 and chapter 5, we're starting to lock some ideas in place and help them to realize that we all can be saved and we can all be confident of that. We can even find unity in that. What about you this evening? How do you feel about this offer of salvation? How do you feel about what the Lord has done? What is your response to that? Have you responded to that? Let me say, first of all, if you are a Christian this evening, but maybe there are some doubts and lingering questions and thoughts in your mind, you're just not certain of your salvation. If the things that we've talked about this evening from Romans chapter 5 have not given you the assurance that you need, could we talk? Could we just sit down and just talk through some of those things? Maybe just can be talking with another Christian, sitting down with an open Bible. Maybe we can come to the clarity that we need and the confidence where we're able to stand in the grace of God. It may be that there is sin in your life and you know that there is sin in your life and as a result of that, yeah, you're, you're not all that sure of your salvation. What's the fix? The fix for that is you need to repent. You need to come back to God. You need to trust in Him fully so that you can stand in Christ. And if we can help you this evening to pray for you or encourage you to serve the Lord in a better way, then we're ready to do that as well. If you're not a Christian, I would hope that after this morning's lesson and even the things that we've talked about, which are probably a little bit more, more meaty stuff from Romans chapter 5 tonight, I hope if nothing else you would come to understand and you would realize the Lord wants you to be saved. And He has moved heaven and earth literally in order to make that possible. The sending of Jesus and everything that that entails. Can we help somebody tonight? Maybe you've had some time this afternoon to sit and allow the thoughts of this morning's lesson to percolate and work in your mind and in your heart a little bit more. Maybe right now is the time. Maybe now is the moment when you're going to stop all the waiting and all of the delaying. And Jesus is beckoning you to come and to do that exactly at this very moment. We're going to stand in just a second. We're going to sing the song that's been selected, Lamb of God. What a wonderful and perfect song to sing at the conclusion of this lesson. Would you come to that Lamb? Would you allow Him to work in you so that you can indeed have salvation. It's not too good to be true. It is absolutely true. And you can come and get that this evening. Why don't you do that right now while we stand and while we sing.